Hey everybody, welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. Uh, really excited. We got a, a good show tonight. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Rams. Andy, dominant performance Woo! for the Rams at the SoFi tonight. Woo! Woo! They, I they, mean, that, that's yeah. one of those games, Brian, that you really feel for there being no fans beyond knowing the reason there's no fans because there is that damn pandemic going on and it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. If anything, the numbers are spiking and getting worse and these vaccines cannot arrive. I think people know what's going on. Sure. But I'm just saying like, you know, everything that's going on, but like you feel for there being no fans because that's really one that they would have enjoyed watching because a, you get the Rams just dominating this game from start to finish and B, you know, you get a little bit of Super Bowl revenge. I know yeah, it's not, I, exact, I, this it's not, is the, exact, yeah. it's not yeah. the exact same thing. It's not I the exact it, same thing. But you're still beating Bill Belichick and the Patriots. I guarantee Rams fan, like LA Rams FC right now in the chat, he's happy with it. He's, right. He says he, he just noticed on uh, on Twitter he says we should have invited Jordan Rodriguez, who by the way is coming next week, yes, honoring she what she said about showing back up for Jets week. We um, can't we can't invite Jordan can't, tonight. She's, because she's working. working. Yeah, <laughs> she has things to do. Right. I mean, she's like actually working tonight. It's Thursday night football. She's writing about this right. game, and everybody should go read about it at you the You should athletic. be grateful that she can't be on this show tonight. Exactly. Because you wouldn't be getting her coverage. Um. So, uh, we coming up, we have. Uh, a couple things we want to get into. We'll talk about the Paul George extension, which uh, a lot of Lakers fans are enjoying tonight. Um, we will try to give some perspective on that. It's it's it, even setting aside Paul George from this. It says so much about the way we look at players and the game is is kind of perceived. So we'll do that before we're done. And uh, the big feature tonight. We spoke to uh, Bernardo Ruiz, who is the director of the new 30 for 30, which debuts next week. It's called The Infinite Race. Um, it is like most 30 for 30s, Andy. It is an outstanding, outstanding documentary. Um, it's about this uh, ultra marathon in one of the most remote parts of Mexico that it kind of draws people, has drawn people from the outside, um, seeking all kinds of different things. And the the, the relationships that they develop with the the local people, the native people of that of that region, this this group it's of a, people who are known for their yeah distance running, they these sort of almost have like a mythical quality about the way that they run distances. So uh, our conversation with Bernardo Ruiz is going to be coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, but let's let's talk more about about this game tonight because, like you say, it doesn't it doesn't exactly uh, substitute for winning a Super Bowl, no. but it <laughs> it does. No, I, um, I'm willing to say the ninth win of the regular season does not equal a Super Bowl. In not two, not in one to one. Uh, what was it? 2017, like yeah, uh, 2018. I though, I mean, this was it, it, this game to be kind of it was like a microcosm of a lot of the things that I love about the Rams and. Also, the thing that still worries me, but like you go out and the and, and you know the Rams did exactly Andy what in the twenty four three win tonight at SoFi uh, over the Patriots exactly what you would want them to do. They had the ball first. They scored on their opening drive. They get out a little bit ahead, you know, seventeen nothing, and all that. And they basically just never let New England in the game. They relied on their defense. They relied on their running game, and they got out of here with an easy win.
That's all I had to say about that. Oh, okay. I'm, I, it's, it felt like you, you were soliloquying up to something. I, no, I, I, and I did, and it stopped at and got out of there with an easy win. I think I caught you again. This happened at the end of the last show or a couple no, of No, 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 no. You caught, you caught me sending a tweet. Right, that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Uh, I thought no, you were doing Like, I caught you sending, I think, like, you know, we have to tweet during the show. We have to put out the Okay, I thought you were referring that. to, uh, there was a recent show. Um, oh, actually, it was the Land of Lakers podcast where you asked me some closing thoughts and I was too busy watching uh, football. Oh, okay, that's what I was, that's basically what I was thinking of. Right, no, this I was this actually. Is you, were, you, were, you were doing our social media work. Right, I was doing work for the show. Right. I mean, First of all, uh, the big takeaway from the game, I, I think, was Cam Akers. The the performance that he had tonight, um, mm-hmm. hundred I believe it was 171 yards, 29 carries, um, plus two catches for 23 yards, 5.9 yards per carry. And if the rest of the team, if you ca- uh, count Jared Goff's four rushes, eight combined, including the oh, – It was the Cam Akers show. Right, in, including the obligatory – the one obligatory sweep for Robert Woods, which I believe is a contract stipulation that yes. he, he gets <laughs> one per game, one jet sweep. It's spelled out in his contract. And it's funny because you this is something, Brian, that you and I have talked about on a few occasions over the course of the season. I've also brought it up with Jordan Rodriguez, who, again, is going to be on with us next week. I've also brought it up with Lindsey Theory, Ted Wynn. I've wondered if what it would look like if the Rams would just turn over their running game to one guy. Not that the Rams haven't been running the the ball this year because they have. They've done it reasonably successfully. They've done it with a lot of volume. And the three running backs that they have, Akers, Daryl Henderson, uh, and uh, Malcolm Brown, they've all had good performances in the ways that they've been used. But it's never really been one guy. And I've wondered at times if that's prevented – any of them from getting the maximum rhythm they potentially could get in a game, like really finding their best groove. And we saw the beginning of this last week with Cam Akers getting 21 carries, and obviously that increased tonight. I'm going to be very curious to see where this goes from here. Like if he really becomes, well, I mean, yeah, the guy. he, he, I think, you know, when Henderson was. Uh, you know, came into the game, I guess, a little dinged up. Sure. And then that happened with but, Akers during the season too, but. It, it looks certainly I, I will say two things first they're going to run the ball a lot next week because the game plan for next week is similar to the you know you're playing a really bad jets team i mean obviously as as bad as a team can be um that doesn't have an offense you know similar to new england not having a, any kind of real dynamic offense and all you need to do is if with that with with that defense get up by 15, 14 points and do what they did at the beginning of the third quarter. Was that a nine-minute drive? I mean, the, the game was that. That was one of the most impressive stretches where, like, you know, you have a team that may be able to still kind of get in. You let you know New England's playing as well as they've played all year coming into this game, which isn't good, but it's still better. But the Rams just never gave them a chance, and they did it all on the ground. It's going to be the same way next week against the Jets. Um, yeah, because if they can get up by fourteen against you know against them, it's they're not going to come back. You wonder what happens past that. You know, if if they you know, assuming they beat the Jets, and I think they will, do you keep running the ball against Arizona again? I don't really know the rest of the schedule in front of me into the playoffs and all that kind of stuff. Is this the sort of game plan where they really shift from being a team that throws the ball maybe a little bit more than people would like to a true run heavy? 
kind of thing, which you've done a little bit, but not, yeah. not like it was tonight. Yeah. I mean, and, and Cam Akers just dominated in this game. I mean, he had a, he had a lot of runs where he broke off long chunks of yardage. I mean, yeah. He, he, he six yards a carry. You're he, doing he, something right. Right. He was breaking tackles. I mean, like, I, I just want to make sure people understand this wasn't like front loaded by a couple long runs. Like he, he really from start to finish was just consistently getting yardage you know, he, he, you could see too. I, th- I thought he did a great job reading the way plays were breaking, being patient at times, finding the right hole to get to. I mean, he just, he really looked good in this game. And it, I'm just curious to see what it looks like with, you know, one guy having a, having more of that solidified role. I don't even mean it in a way that's critical of Sean McVay. I mean, I, I've said before that I, I wish that he would involve these guys more in the passing game. But I'm not getting on him that I don't think he's run the ball enough because I think they oh, they've have. run the ball. They've run the ball plenty. Right, exactly. I, I'm not being critical of that at all. I just I've I've been curious just what it would look like where you really give the majority of responsibility to one guy just to see if if any well, of them would really be capable. Part of, part of, of the part, but part of the reason they haven't always been able to do it is you know at least in terms of really the workload is. You know, Aker, the, Malcolm Brown plays third downs, not because he's the best receiver, but because he's the best blocker. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they were, a, as they say, Andy, ahead of the sticks mm-hmm. all night tonight. And so, you know, you didn't need Malcolm Brown in there on third down. You didn't have a lot of third and long and you know, all this other stuff. They, they, the defense was dominant against a bad offensive team. And you had, you know, first and, you know, second and four, third and one, third. And they, they didn't need Jared Goff to do anything. Um, and, you know, for better or for worse, and it's probably not something you want to rely on in a playoff game against Green Bay or other teams that can put up a lot of points, but for better or for worse, they are better when it doesn't yeah. matter if Jared Goff is good. Yeah. I mean, look, there are games where he plays well. He had a good game against Arizona. Not terrible. You know, the week, the, the week before. I, no, I'm, I'm not saying that you're saying he's terrible. My point is he is capable of this season having those type of games for all of the up and down that's been there with golf. And, you know, you and I were texting a little bit back and forth um, about this game. And, you know, my impression of the Rams this season, and tonight really solidified it, is they can be maddeningly inconsistent and at times inexplicably inconsistent. And when that happens – they can hit a pretty stark. Go ahead and finish. I actually don't think it's inexplicable, but go well, ahead. It, it will it's at quite times, explicable. Well, it, I guess, but it, it's Jericho. Maddening. It's not, but it's not, it's not, it, it, it's frust. I get the maddening part and I get the frustrating part, but it's maddening not inexplicable. In it's Jared, it's Jared okay. Goff's well, performance. Okay. I guess inexplicable in the sense of times you wonder what the hell is going on. Just get it together, man. But either way, what my point was their floor can look really stark at times when things aren't going well or they just don't seem to find that gear. But when things are going well, this team's got a really high ceiling. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they really – they're legit. And that defense – I remember the, the first half of the season, they looked really good, but there was that question of, okay, you guys have played a few NFC East teams. Like, is this real? We're going to yeah. see it during the second half. It's real. This, this defense oh, is the defense, absolutely. fantastic. Yeah, no question. 
Um, so, I mean, yeah, you look at it, they, you know, they win next week and they're in. Um, and again, I, I just am not going to sit here and say that a Rams team that can get themselves into the playoffs with a victory is going to lose to the Jets. I, I, I am well, not. Look, that's the reason why they're not going to finish this week at the top of the NFC West, because the team that they need to stay ahead of, Seattle, plays the Jets. Plays the Jets. Week, and the Jets don't let people beat them. Like, it's no. – as an aesthetic, as an MO this season, they will not let you lose. Like, it's just not what they do. <laughs> help <laughs> they, us help you. They're, they're going to find a way to lose the game. I promise you that. So the Rams in Seattle are going to finish this weekend nine and four. Like, that's going um, to happen. Yeah. So, uh, that, that that part's going to work. It very much looks like they're going to, to make the playoffs. Um, and that in and of itself is sorry, I, somebody noted that I had the wrong score in my tweet, which is true. It was 24 to three, not 24 to seven. Um, that in and of itself is exceeding a little bit. I mean, I thought they could make the playoffs this year, but I was I was very concerned about what this team could be. Oh, I was um, much and they're good. And like they are legitimate, they're legitimately good in an yeah. in a in a NFC where you know, maybe the Saints, when especially when Drew Brees comes back, they've been very good, even with Taysom Hill at, at quarterback. There's limits to it, though. Yeah, there I would agree. I mean, you're better with you're, you're better with Drew Brees. I think. Yeah, yeah it's you know, he, they're still going to do stuff with Hill, but like, other than maybe the Saints, you know, the Packers are good, but they're not flawless. The Seahawks are good, but they're not flawless. But it, it does look like though. Are you have a lot of teams because like the Packers defense is starting to get better um, as that offense has been really good. The Seahawks defense is starting to get better. Um, it does seem like there are a few teams that are are getting to that sort of more playoff elite level. While by the way, the Buccaneers seem to fall to shit, which it's going to make some people happy. Um, you know, you do see Rams, Seahawks, Packers, Saints as kind of an emerging elite. Um, as you know, Kyler Murray's injury drags down the Cardinals, and the Vikings are just kind of eh. Um, the Bears became the Bears, and the Bucks yes. are, just aren't that great. Vikings have been a little better lately, but they're they're not going to scare right. anybody. Someone's going to make you know the Giants maybe win that division, maybe Washington does. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. the The other thing that stuck out in this game, um, as because really, you know, this really was quickly, a very way, really quick before you get sure. to this point, because we were just talking about the different teams and and who could potentially pose the biggest uh, challenge to the Rams in the NFC. You, you were talking about Seattle, their defense starting to get better. And, you know, they're bunched right now. They're, I, they're going to be bunched together um, in terms of the standings. The Rams have played Seattle very well oh, yeah. over the last few years. Like if that, one, yeah, I mean, you know. but, but they, they've been very, very good against the Seahawks. Like it's just, it's just a team that they do well against. So, you know, it, it, it they, I mean, they're going to, again, they're going to make the playoffs. So that, that part is going to work out well, but the, you know, it, before we get to, uh, to our interview with Bernardo Ruiz, the other storyline in this game was the sadness. If you are a person who likes Cam Newton or at the very least, even just respects what Cam Newton has accomplished in the, in the NFL, this was a really sad game. Yeah. Um, because 
you know, I had high hopes. You had high. I think we everybody wanted him to be really good. I think people thought there was a chance. You know, he goes in with Bill Belichick, and it just kind of works out. And he's able to resurrect his career and 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 kind of stick it to some people, quite frankly, who you know don't like him because he does the Superman thing, or he you know wears funny hats, or whatever it might be, or because he's black, or whatever it might. Be. <laughs> However, you want to slice and dice it, because often those things are related to each other. Indeed, but. Six nine of 16, 119 yards, um, sacked four times. He he's not working with a lot there. I mean, if, no. if you're not a fantasy football player and can name three wide receivers for New England, um, you spend too much time watching football. But he's he's not it's not there anymore. And yeah. it, it is it, it is the effort that it takes for him to throw and get the ball to people and the, it's hard. It's really hard to watch. And, and he eventually was replaced by Jared Stidham uh, in the fourth quarter. I kind of understood why. It's just it's just it's just been sad on that front. Yeah. I mean I agree with you that there's been a lot of ways that Cam Newton, you know, over the years for that have been well publicized that he's just been polarizing for reasons that aren't fair to him at all. But at the same time, man, my biggest concern with him, even though there had been that optimism and, you know, he was, he's obviously in a great setting when it comes to coach and he clearly needed to get out of Carolina, you know, that had run its course, but I always have these concerns with athletes when you start seeing them breaking down and you just you just wonder if you've reached a point where your body won't cooperate anymore. Like right. I remember when when oh, Kobe, think, yeah, absolutely. When, and you know, when Kobe, for example, when he tore his Achilles, obviously that was the stark beginning of the end, but the truth is we were starting to see gradual signs of not a decline necessarily in his play, but in a decline in terms of Kobe being able to play through anything. You know, that, that ability just his body can hold up no matter what because Kobe was renowned for this ability to, you know, play with a, an ankle swollen up the size of a grapefruit. You know, st stuff like that. Sometimes and, he would actually do it on purpose. Like he would he would bash his own body parts until they would swell up just so he could do it. Oh, I, I remember in my running joke when Steve Blake got the chicken pox and couldn't play. Kobe used to take Steve Blake and like rub Blake <laughs> up against him because he's like, chicken pox are wasted on this guy. Like yeah. I want the ability to play through chicken pox. Like nobody cares if Steve Blake has a chicken pox game, but they care if Kobe does. But like there, there comes a point where your body just can't do it anymore. You know, Kobe actually, we talked about this a couple of days with Scott Feinberg from the Hollywood Reporter. You know, he actually acknowledged that in Dear Basketball, you know, the poem, just, you know, that his body won't allow it anymore. And I remember when Kobe was attempting to make that uh, comeback from the Achilles and we would get asked a lot, do you think this is possible? And my, my standard response was, if anybody can do this, Kobe can. I'm just not convinced anybody can do it. And I think that's what we're seeing with Cam Newton right now. His body has been yeah. through so much. He just, no matter how much will is there, how much desire, inherent skill, whatever, he just can't do it anymore. It's, and you know, you can tell when a guy like, you know, Tom Brady wasn't working with much last year with the, the Patriots either. And he suffered because of it. He didn't look as good as he normally does. But like you can tell when it's the guys around the quarterback and not just the quarterback. You know, Deshaun Watson is not working with much in Houston either. 
uh, with the Texans and is clearly still awesome. Like, like he's doing superhuman oh, stuff he's to make that, just to make that offense look like even kind of competent requires him to, to be, to do kind of superhuman stuff. Cam can't. And w- the part that really made me saddest about all of it was because the, the offense around him is limited. No question. Better weapons. Cam would look better. I get that. But because they're limited and he's limited, all that's actually really left for them to do and McDaniels to call are different running plays where Cam can use his size and and run the ball a little bit and whatever, which only adds to the abuse that keeps him from being good. It's just it's sort of like all he, he has left. There there was that sequence early in the game where the where the Patriots were near the Rams end zone. And they called two consecutive running plays. Yeah, this, like this was. By the way, this was basically the ball game. This yeah. is a, a, the 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 goal line stand the Rams made. Um, I think they were up seventeen nothing at that point, or it might have been seventeen three. I forget. I, I don't remember the exact. This was score. it was they, this was the ball game. But they they went third and goal, fourth and goal, two plays that involved Cam Newton running, and he could barely move, and you could see the hesitation in the way the way he was reacting to things and the decisions that he was making because in his head, the sequence is playing out quicker than the way this actually right. is. He just, he, it's not there for him anymore. And and for, as somebody that really enjoyed watching Cam Newton play at his MVP level and thought he was just really fun and potentially reinventing the position and, you know, the things that he did, the athleticism at his size it's brutal to watch. There was a play. I don't know if you caught this, but there was a, a pass that he threw in the second half of this game, and it was way wide. And you actually heard him go like Argh! during the pass because he, he just he was laboring just to throw. And it, it's awful to watch. It really is, man. Like when this happens to great athletes, when their bodies betray them, it's really awful. It, it's it's very very humanizing to see in ways that you know just tough to watch. Yeah, um, it happens to like especially guys who are you know use their bodies in the way that Cam Newton has. Um, I just feel like he sort of deserves better. Um, yeah, you know he's he's a good guy too. I mean, we, we one of the other things we talked about with Jordan before the the season started. Like she's a, a fan of the person. Like you know she yeah. got to cover him in Carolina and understands kind of what he was there uh as a human being uh in the community and um for all the sort of the flash and this and that with the controversy around him and so you, you get a feel for people uh that way and he's just he's a fun guy to watch um so anyway great game for the rams overall yes. you know breakout game for uh for cam Akers. i loved this game from a sean mcveigh's perspective like when you sit here and talk about coaches that you know guys have to do it their way this i would like if you would have said the Rams are going to win games with two tight ends on the on the field and running the ball twenty nine times with their rookie running back, all this other stuff, like you know, that's not the Rams' offense two years ago, three years ago. It is now when they need and 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 kudos to Sean McVay for adjusting to what his team needs, what works, and all that stuff. That's the sign of a really great coach. It's not I the mean, guy who who makes everybody do things their way with their system. It's the guy who 
adjusts what's effective to who is on his actual roster. Nobody's so, been uh, better at that than Bill Belichick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, it's for what all? makes Pop great. It was right. Belichick great. Absolutely. Um, for, for all yeah, of, go ahead. For, I was going to say, for all of Bill Belichick's dictatorial reputation, and, you know, and he, it has been in a lot of ways his way or the highway, broadly speaking, with that organization because he's had an incredible amount of power there. But he has not been, you know, he, he's not been a purist when it comes no. to his system. And he, he's been actually remarkably flexible. There have been years where they, where they threw the ball all over the park, where they, where they, you know, ran the ball a ton, where they relied on their defense. They do it in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll get to Paul George here also in a minute. Um, this is something we've never done, Andy. Uh, on this show, on the late night happy hour, we have been playing around with the capabilities of the machine. Um, and we want to we we offer do, everybody more options. We want yes. to offer our audience different, you know, more variety or more potential in terms of the guests that we can bring in, acknowledging that this show is late on the West Coast, much less right middle middle of the country or the east coast so you know in 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 an effort to uh be able to get people on like andy says you know great guests on the east coast writers and you know uh entertainers whoever it might be just really good people on the show um one of the things we we do we can do now we can we can actually record things ahead of time um which we did with uh this week with bernardo ruiz he is a two-time emmy award winning or excuse me uh, award nominated documentary maker um he has credits with hbo pbs and espn now with uh, 30 for 30 the infinite race uh as we mentioned before it, it is a fascinating story about this ultra marathon that takes place in the copper canyon in mexico um with the tarahumara uh or raramari uh people and these you know uh you know, outsiders, foreigners from, you know, not just in, you know, Mexico, but, you know, coming from America, coming from Europe and all these places to participate in this race. Um, so we had a chance to talk to him. This is the, uh, we're going to play the trailer for the, the film to give you an idea kind of what the, uh, what the movie is. And then we'll uh, bring you the interview, the conversation itself. The Tarahumarans are among the world's most primitive Indians and among the world's best long-distance runners. They are a Smithsonian exhibit come to life. But there's a guy named Caballo Blanco who's been living down the bottom of the canyons for years and set up a 50-mile race. I wrote about it for what Caballo would later say was a world-class event down here in the middle of nowhere. All the runners from around the world, they were there because they read the book Born to Run. It was almost like they had all read the Bible and they were following their pilgrimage to this the sacred place. Correr is la resistencia. La resistencia ante la imposición una gran parte de nuestra identidad, pero los ultramaratones para mí no forman parte de la cultura. Es un trabajo más de, de agradecimiento que importante por una meta. Hay dos grandes cárteles operando, despojándoles de su territorio ancestral. Te tienes que huir antes de que te maten. 
muertos por allá, muertos por acá, o sea, estaba muy feo. En eso llega Silvino, y yo lo abrazo, lloro, y le digo a Silvino, ¿qué vamos a hacer? Y me dice, correr. Somos un mundo diferente, pero podemos entender a este mundo que está aquí también. Si el mundo no deja de hacer rotación, tenemos que correr. All right, so that is the, the infinite race. Again, we spoke to Bernardo Ruiz uh, earlier this week, and I started that by asking him, oops, oops. Oh, man. What? I, I, I accidentally hit play. We're doing so well. Oh, no, that's the YouTube thing that's still going. Um, anyway, sorry about that. So... Um, I, we, we, we spoke to Bernardo Ruiz, the director of this film, earlier this week, um, and I started the, the interview asking him just what drew him to this project uh, that you've told here. What, what drew you to it initially? Um, there are, I guess there are a couple of things that drew me to this story. One is I'd always wanted to uh, make a running film um, when I was a teenager, I saw, um, you know, it was a late night airing of the loneliness of the long distance runner, the, the British film, to, you know, from 1962. I saw it on cable. I was 17 years old and I saw it on cable. Um, I think it was the IFC channel. And um, it, uh, I loved it. I just, uh, it, was a, it, it was a film about kind of bucking authority, uh, standing up for what you believe in. And of course, those themes resonated for me as a you know stubborn seventeen-year-old. Um, and then you know most of my career, I've been covering uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico, and I've done a lot of stories that touch on organized crime or or the cartels, you know what we call the cartels. And so um, you know, I those two things were floating around, and uh, I read this extraordinary piece uh, of journalism, uh, this article that appeared in the Texas Monthly called "The Drug Runners." And it's basically a story about how organized crime has been conscripting or exploiting Tarumara runners uh, to ferry drugs into the U.S. Great piece by Ryan Goldberg. Uh, and so that kind of sparked, I thought, my God, we can put these two things together. And um, these two, you know, running film and a kind of film about power and drugs and all this other stuff. And I began collaborating with Ryan and, uh, and, and ESPN to try to make a, a you know, a, a documentary about this subject. That's interesting. Uh, the way running spoke to you, at, you know, as a teenager, and I guess speaks to you now. Just that idea of that that stubbornness and doing your own thing, because it's an actual theme for the the people of this community themselves, and and that push pull between you know keeping their own identity versus the these races that that take place growing larger and, and becoming more known, and, and you know what it means globally, but also internally for them, their own culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And that, that, that theme that kind of runs throughout those films uh, is, or, you know, this idea is, is, is resistance, basically, you know, standing up for yourself and, and kind of, and persevering. Um, so that was something that was, you know, I found really interesting and, and my team found really interesting when, 
we were trying to, to look at how to tell this story, you know, the one thing we did want to do is kind of center the voices of people from the Taramara community. You know, they refer to themselves as the Raramuri. Um, and, uh, you know, you have Irma Chavez, who's this incredible runner and activist in the film, and, and she's the one who's repeatedly saying, you know, this is a tradition for us that is above and beyond any um, individual race. It's above and beyond any of individual competition. And, you know, she says it very plainly, like before outsiders came and, you know, including you filmmakers, before you guys came, you know, we were running and we will continue to run. That That's, you know, our, that's our history. And uh, it's one of resistance and, and survival. It's also really interesting, really quickly, just that they refer to themselves one way and have become known as something completely different. Um, a, how did that happen? Like in terms of being referred to this completely different way that it seems like they don't have a vote on. And wh what do you think that speaks to, like in terms of thematically with the story you were telling? It's a great question. And um, I, you know, I think if you had to boil this, this film down or the story into one thing is that it's really a story of, about like power and culture. I mean, it's like, sounds very heady, but you know that, but I think that's what it, it really is about. And, you know, throughout history, this has happened where uh, people in power, you know, whether it's governments or big, you know, powerful entities, they're able to, to name things and call, call things the way they want, you know, carve up territories, name things the way they'd like to, whether or not the people there want that. <laughs> so Tarahumara is a corruption of, uh, it was when the Spanish arrived, according to different accounts, the, it was a, a kind of corruption of, of uh, a mishearing or misunderstanding of, of, of a term. Uh, so that that's part of it. And it's interesting because the people from the Raramuri community, that is their preferred term, um, they will also sometimes say Tarahumara because it's easier sometimes mm -hmm. if, a more commonly understood and well-known term. So they'll use the outside, they'll code switch to the outside. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I have to do that too sometimes, you know, like, especially when in a lot of press accounts, more people have heard of the Tarahumara than they have heard of the Raramuri. So it gets complicated. When, what is the gap is the, the film opens with people from this community running and they're running in sandals and they're in all of these things that, as we learn throughout the story, become kind of part of this mythology uh, around this this running community. As you um, as you start to as you started to explore the the story, what did you find to be the gap, kind of culturally about running between the Raramuri and the outsiders who would come to run in these races? Um, it's another great question. Um, you know what you see at the beginning of the film. Uh, they're, they're male runners who are running in, uh, it's called the Rara Hippity. So it's this traditional ball race where uh, basically the runners have carved this hard wooden ball um, and they basically kick it in kind of a relay race, just passing the ball along. The, you know, the, the, the different accounts say that these, these games and, and they, they continue to happen over days at a time. So that is a very kind of traditional race almost well, I mean one that just keeps going and going um, that is a kind of core part of the tradition as is the Ariweta which is the women's race and that's a race you see at a different sequence in the film where it's um, the women racers basically have a little ring that they pick up with sticks and they toss that ring into the air 
And again, it's a, it's got a similar kind of pattern, mm-hmm. a relay that you know that's about pushing forward. So those, you know, according to the the, the participants in the film, that's really these kind of core traditions that that continue. Um, I think the difference between that and what some of the you know outside runners participate in is that the the outside runners participate in a competition. It's a friendly competition, and it's one about cultural exchange, but it's it's still a kind of more finite race. And there is a you know a, a different worldview about um, about those two kind of uh, types of running. So it's something that we touch on in the film. It's that tension between kind of tradition and then how things are modified or changed when outsiders come in. Yeah, and what is one of the themes I think is fascinating is that kind of the way that the outsiders look at the Robert Murray. There's this romanticizing of them uh, and of the running culture, and uh, even um, oh, geez, uh, Micah Micah True, who kind of founded this uh, Caballo Blanco race, talks at the beginning about wanting to do it so they can keep. And I think this is a quote. Uh, be free of all that worldly crap. Like there's a, a projection, I think, uh, that other people place on that community. How do they react to that? Um, first of all, is that perception, do you think, accurate? And then how do they react to that? Yeah, I, I do think that that's an accurate um, read on, on, you know, what we, I mean, as much as possible as a documentary filmmaker, I'm trying to let the material speak for itself. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that that's an accurate read and it's, you know, uh, Mike, I made statements like that. And then, you know, the best-selling author, Christopher McDougall, you know, whose book Born to Run inspired a lot of international runners to come in, also made statements like that. And I, I, I think we're all kind of, uh, as outsiders, guilty of that kind of projection and, and romanticizing. So part of the goal that I set out in the film was to try to have the film be a kind of talk back. And so have the Raramuri uh, members of the community and the runners kind of talk back to things that they see in the film. For me, one moment, and it was a, you know, one thing I wanted to to see was, you know, in, in journalism, you often go and get a quote, you know, if, so, if like a powerful elected says something about somebody, you go back to them and you say, hey, so-and-so says this, What do you, how do you respond to this? And I thought it was very telling that people really haven't done that with the Raramuri community. There's a lot of speaking for them rather than them speaking back to accounts of, of their culture and their their running traditions. So in the film, I assembled some archival material of people running barefoot, you know, as a result of the craze inspired yeah. by, by mm-hmm. and I brought it to Silvino Cubesari's house. Silvino is a veteran Raramuri runner um, who is uh, makes a, an appearance in Christopher McDougall's book. He's also in, in the Texas Monthly article. Um, and I, I just showed him the footage and I had no idea what his reaction would be. And, and as you see in the film, he kind of laughs at first and then he, he scoffs and he says, you know, I just don't understand why people who can afford to have good shoes would, would run barefoot. Why would they want to suffer? And he was kind of incredulous. You know, he said, we, we, I grew up having to do this, not mm-hmm. because I wanted to, um, but because that's just the way it was because of poverty. So I, I think, you know, that's an interesting instance where, you know, his view is that, um, this wasn't about uh, having minimal footwear or being, you know, closer aligned to the ground. It was just that, that was what we had available. So yeah. I, I, you know, I wanted to just 
highlight that his perspective and his. yeah, and, and Irma Chavez echoes that towards the end of the film as well. You're not honoring us when you don't wear shoes. We don't wear shoes because we have to. Not it's like people who spend thousands of dollars to look fashionably homeless. You know, <laughs> like you know, they they have their jeans professionally ripped. There, there's that part in the in the movie where uh, Christopher McDougall, you know, describes uh, describes Born to Run as something. Uh, that can be anything you want it to be, like the way the book is. And and I thought it was an interesting, delicate line when it comes to exploring cultures, because like it's obviously good in principle that you would want to explore other cultures. And there's still, though, this danger of personalizing it too far, because for the actual Murray, like their culture isn't whatever they want it to be. It's what they are. You know what I mean? Like, like they don't get a choice in, in whatever their culture is because it's what they live. It's their existence. And I, I think one commonality, I think even with some of the best intended um, Americans and outsiders in this movie is them perhaps losing sight of that. Like the, the idea that there, there is that contextual difference. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that assessment. I really think that that um, that gets a kind of at the heart, one of the kind of maybe uncomfortable truths of the film is, you know, when when are we uh, projecting and 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 reducing a culture to suit our needs um, rather than viewing it in its complexity? And I, I think a good example for me is the 2015 race that we document in the film. Mm-hmm. When, you know, I think for a lot of international runners, this race that happens every year in Urique is a kind of utopia. It's a kind of paradise to to be there. Um, And, you know, the reality, the social reality, you know, that there's there's organized crime, there's small, you know, crime groups tied to big cartels in the area. And in 2015, they came in and there were gunfights and people were killed. And this race for international runners was, uh, and you know, was disrupted, um, and eventually canceled. And to me, that was a moment when kind of these power relationships that we're talking about—it's when all of the stuff was laid bare. Um, the race is canceled by the Americans, and every person sees, uh, you know, every person and every group sees this event from very different points yeah. of view. The international runners and the American runners say, you know, this is not safe. Killings are happening. We need to cancel this and get out of here. The local Mexican electeds and organizers say, wait, gringos, who are you to, you know, it's, you don't have the right to, can't, this is happening in our town, you can't cancel this race. And the indigenous Praramuri runners say, we want to run because we need these vouchers for food. So it's like very, very different points of view in this. Yeah, area. it's one of the one of the amazing things in the movie is, you know, and, and a question that, that I will get to, I think, in a second. Um, Actually, no. I'll just ask it now, and then ask the the one I was going to ask in a minute. What when people would come to to run in the, in this race, people would come from outside, and and uh, Silvino refers to them these ultra marathons at the beginning as mestizo races, uh, mixed race uh, ultra marathons, um, kind of denoting the outsider nature of them. What what did you find that people were looking for, like in your in 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 documenting this story? Because as you just mentioned, the the participants from from the area were running for food. They were running for corn and, and corn vouchers. So when people come from outside, what were they looking for? It's a, a great question. Um, the the photographer, uh, Luis Escobar, who's in the film and who photographed the very first uh, race between the Tarumara and the 
and you know um, the outside runners. You know, he has a he he kind of had a smart take. I said, you know, I think a lot of American and, and European runners um, live an uh, unremarkable or unromantic life, as he put it. And so this race is a, an opportunity to challenge yourself and and kind of go beyond. Uh, your limits. It's a little bit of, it's interesting. We, over the last few years, we've seen a growth in ultra marathons. I mean, that, that is such a, an intense physical experience to run beyond 26.2 miles. I mean, you know, I'm exhausted going from one end of my apartment to the other these days that, that to, to push yourself like that is such a remarkable feat. So it, it is that kind of, um, we've seen this growth in, in kind of extreme sports and uh, really pushing the human body to its limits. So I, I think for that's part of it. And the other part is a, a kind of like credit street cred, right? Mm-hmm. So you go to a place like this and it's um, you're able to say, you know, I ran with the Tatamata. I, I, I did this hardcore thing. It's a kind of badge of honor and, and, and rightly so. I mean, it is a truly daunting course in Copper Canyon. Yeah, right. This, this gives you an idea of what, what the Copper Canyon looks like. I mean, it's not cushy. Not at all. And I will just say this as a, so you have nothing but respect for the people who run that course. I uh, did uh, lengths of that course, not even the entire thing on the back of a, a four by four, like looking at a monitor and I was drenched in sweat just for, you know, <laughs> for riding along, looking at a monitor. So um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have lasted uh, very long on that race. No, it is a truly intense, uh, intense experience. So I think that's, that's part of the draw. It's like any kind of extreme experience um, it, it pushes you and, and, you know, tests you to your limits. Um, you, you, in, in the, the, in your last answer, you talked a little bit about like these actors, you know, the Americans, you know, the, very, you know, gen- it's, one of the things that is interesting about the story is everybody is aside from, I guess, the cartels, well-meaning of the principal characters in the story. You know, the Americans cancel the race because they're worried about people's safety. They're like, they're, it's not illegitimate as a, as a storyteller. How do you tell a story? when there isn't necessarily a bad guy um you know i I, maybe it's the way i grew up or or the the way i do um this work but i genuinely uh can see the the point and the perspective of each each person in the film Mm -hmm. Uh, for me it's not about uh never been black and white never been like oh those dumb americans they don't get it um, first of all, because I'm not from an indigenous community, that's not, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not claiming to represent that perspective. What is interesting to me is how an event like the 2015 race, how it can be seen so differently from different perspectives and to kind of try to have the viewer inhabit those points of view. And I think that's the goal of the film. I mean, not to get too heady, but I, another filmmaker that I, I, I loved kind of early on and, you know, as a student and trying to get into films was, um, Robert Altman, you know, the Nashville. Yeah. Was it kind of those films where I was like, wow, this is just amazing. The overlapping perspectives. Overlapping perspectives. And you end up creating this really amazing portrait of a place. You know, Altman was, you know, talking about show business and and music and and the city at this particular time. And you end up getting a kind of what's to me a deeper portrait than if it were just a kind of straight drama with one Mm -hmm. hero character. So I think to me, that's that's what's interesting about documentary. And uh, so that's what I tried to do in these interviews. You know, Ryan Van Duzer, the, the blogger, like I, I totally understand all of that energy and excitement and want to be there. Nothing but good intentions. Um, I also see the local Mexican perspective. We're like, wait a second, we have to live here. 
you know, year round, these gringos just come in and they fly, they parachute yeah. out. Like, I empathized a lot more with the local Mexicans, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. <laughs> I, I, I get those perspectives, you know, from the perspective of the race organizers, you know, you're responsible for the safety of a large group of people. Mm -hmm. And there are killings happening. Yeah, I, I mean, what are you going to do? It's there's there are no easy answers. I think. Well, well I, I think it gets it gets to the point Andy was making about like well-intentioned people can have blind spots that come out of a good place. He doesn't. Well, he's not a bad person. And and also too, the blind spot I think to sort of the geopolitical politics of from you know the local Mexican perspective that these Americans were coming in and unilaterally making these decisions. And often it seemed like from their perspective, they were kind of coming in late to the game while a lot of the grunt work was being done by the locals. And then these sort of big sweeping decisions get made by them. But, you know, I guess the flip side of that perspective would be, or if you're trying to play devil's advocate with it, the, the Americans coming in bring a lot of infrastructure that otherwise wouldn't be there. They bring, I guess, to some degree more just pure logistical expertise, or at least they, they might see themselves as having it. So they, they might just see themselves as performing what would be their function to this in the first place. I think that's a, absolutely right. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the international runners who come in also see that they're, they have the contacts, you know, in the outside mm -hmm. world, they can, they can help promote and bring, uh, people into the, to, to the area. But I, I think that's, what's so interesting about all of this is that it, it is about this, this power dynamic. And I think it, you know, I don't have any easy answers in the film, or at least try not to. What, what, what I think is interesting is that we ask that question. It's, you know, um, how do you have an exchange or kind of cultural exchange like this, where it's more equitable? Like, is that, how do we do that? Um, and that it's complicated, you know, that it's, if, if people come in, like like you see this with you know a development or foreign aid a lot right people yeah. in developing countries complain about you know uh you know powerful governments coming in and saying this is what you want rather than listening to the locals about what they actually need and want that's a, that's a classic scenario so I, I think that applies on a kind of very small level here um you know are the international organizers were they in this case listening to to locals about what they needed um, I also think it's it's worth noting that this 2015 race that caused this big hubbub, uh, you know, Micah True, the race organizer, uh, had recently died too. Yeah, there was this kind of power shift too. There's this reorganization that was happening that added to the chaos. When the, the for me, one of the I think powerful themes of the film is this idea. We talk a lot about sport as being something that unites, and there are so many instances in this sort of cultural exchange where that's exactly what's happening. It really is a wonderful thing to see and view. And then there are those moments where people are well-meaning people continue sort of talking past each other and not understanding certain things or whatever it might be. As you were done with this project, looking at that idea of sport or you know competition as a cultural bridge, what were your sort of beliefs going in and what did you believe coming out? You know, I, I think that this that space where uh, people come together and compete or there's any kind of exchange is a very um, important space, a kind of very interesting space. And I, I um, what I wouldn't want is people to just assume that uh, because there's a, a critique or a kind of maybe a reappraisal of, of, of events 
that I am somehow against uh, kind of cultural exchange. I, I think quite the opposite. I just think we have to ask our, ourselves these kind of tough questions. Um, and something I tried to do uh, in the film with with Irma, when I would interview her, I would you know constantly say, well, what what insight can I offer? What what am I? Why 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 are you even talking to me? What is the you know what are what are we trying to get at? And I I, I think that process of questioning yields, I think, deeper, more interesting conversations. And look, I mean, this this kind of stuff is, is part of a continuum. I think, I, I you know, I, I do think it would be very interesting if uh, a Raramuri filmmaker in some future time goes back and, you know, has access to this footage and makes a, another version of this. That it, it you know, that uh, we don't have, culture is never fixed. And I, I don't think, you know, any we can have any lock on anything. But I, I, I do think that, it's about kind of questioning some of these power relationships. And look, this is a year when we've everything's been laid bare, you know, not just in this country, but in the world, right? We had this massive pandemic exposed all of these inequities and we're 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 kind of we're we're in a kind of reckoning thinking about, you know, what, what kind of country are we gonna have, what kind of country are we gonna be? And I think um, not to get too highfalutin about it, but I do think examining and thinking about power and how we how 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 you can collaborate um, it's, it's critical. I, th I think it's critical. So again, this is a tiny little story. This isn't a big, um, you know, this isn't a, a story about a rivalry between like the Chicago Bulls and some other, you know, massive team. This is about a little teeny tiny race that happens in the basin of the Copper Canyon that most people have never heard of. And yet the issues that it brings to the table to me are, are kind of, you know, some of these big, big themes that we're wrestling with at this moment in time. Um, it was interesting watching this movie. I've never seen a 30 for 30 this subtitled before, at least to my recollections. Um, and, you know, it's obviously the way it should be um, in terms of it being predominantly Spanish spoken. But from a filmmaking perspective, it, like knowing at least a lot of the audience, I'm guessing perhaps incorrectly from a demographic standpoint, you're presenting it to, does it shape the way you present things as a filmmaker? Um, it's a really good question. I, I think. You know, the stories that I've been attracted to and that I want to tell often have, you know, big chunks of them in Mexico or Latin America. And so they they necessarily um, mean subtitles. I mean, I, I think there is enough of this kind of visual, you know, where you see some running like in the Arihueta or the Rarajipari or, or the race itself where we can see some of the running. But yeah, it does. Um, it, it, it is a challenge to get the subtitles right. and um, but I do think it's nice for the audience to be able to hear both the spoken Spanish and then also the raramuri, spoken raramuri. Um, that was actually something that was a challenge for us just to have work with translators from the community. Mm -hmm. Yuma actually consulted and, and helped us kind of refine, uh, sharpen the meaning of the subtitles. And that, that was a process. It is always a challenge. I'll tell you from the I mean, first time I've started working uh, and making films and in, in, in Spanish to, for U S audiences, the subtitles have always been, uh, it's, it's always a challenge. I mean, the, the good news is though, for, uh, the audience watching this, they're not going to be able to look at their phones during it. Like they're going to have to actually, <laughs> keep it. it's yeah, really true well. though, actually, like it's one, I think, especially in this day and age, um, where everybody just lives with their alternate screens, they have to watch this movie carefully unless they're fluent in Spanish. 
Yeah, or they can they can watch the movie on you know on the TV and the phone. <laughs> Do it. Now. I know. I, I, you'll miss something. I'm telling you, <laughs> it, it's going to um, go past you. Bernardo Ruiz is a two-time Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker. The film, uh, the new Thirty for Thirty, is the Infinite Race. It premieres on December 8, uh, December fifteenth at eight p.m. on ESPN and ESPN Deportes. It is a remarkable, remarkable yes, Thirty for Thirty. I mean absolutely keeps in the tradition of what is always an outstanding series. Uh, thank you so much for, for giving us the time. It really is a great, great film. It was, it was wonderful to talk to you about it. It was amazing to talk to you, you both. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate the, the thoughtful, uh, good questions. I feel like it was a, also not a, not a typical interview. So I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate thank you that very much. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. You're welcome uh, back anytime you'd like. <laughs> thank you very right, much. Best of luck with the movie. Thank you guys. That was that. Um, and I, it, you know, certainly uh, like like it when people say nice things about us at the end of interviews. Um, well, we, we, we could have edited that out, but we, but made, we didn't. No, like, left it in there. We made an purpose. artistic decision because we thought it was in the best interest of really presenting the interview as it happened. That everybody saw the way Bernardo Ruiz complimented us. It's like it's, it, was like, doc, it would be it would be it's a documentary, Andy. It was a documentary well, I mean, of that I, day. I feel like you don't really understand the people um, of the Copper Canyon without hearing Bernardo compliment us. Like, I agree. It's all part of the understanding of the of this whole cultural experience. One one hundred percent. So a couple things. Uh, first of all, it is we're we're not making this up. It is a great documentary. It debuts on the fifteenth, which is next week on both ESPN and ESPN Deportes, um, eight p.m. on east on the east coast. I'm I'm assuming it's eight p.m. on on the west coast as well. Uh, definitely check it out. The, the parts that I thought were you know really was was this. It's a really fascinating look at this way that well-meaning people can talk past each other and this idea of projection that we have as privileged, I mean, Americans, you know, coming from a wealthy country. I, you know, I'm not talking just like white people, white privileges, people of a wealthy place. Relative privilege compared to the globe as a whole. Right. Going to a place with where you want to look at people as... Uh, free of some of the the things that bog us down, uh, the material things that bog us down. When in a lot of places they are desperate for some of those material things and the things that we take for granted, and that can we can pretend what we don't want because we have such they don't consider accidents. those constraints. They consider those things they would really, really like to have if at all possible. Again, you know, a, a group, some one group of people there is running for the experience, for the spiritual connection. The other group is running for corn vouchers. Um, it is. It really is a remarkable story the other thing we'd love to hear from you guys um obviously um this was a taped thing you can see we changed clothes um <laughs> i i did that from my children's room the tiny little desk they work at for school which is why most of my face was like you know three quarters of the way into the screen um but we we are very interested in both bringing you guys uh who who support the show a, a much wider variety of people, uh, which we can do if we can pre-tape things and talk to people on the East Coast and in other countries and other places. But obviously, we all, we want the quality of the show to stay the same as well. So please let us give us your feedback, both in the chat. You can email us, uh, gmail.com, leave it on Twitter, however you want to do it. We'd love to get some feedback on just making sure the experience stays good for you guys. Um we, we know we know that you lose some of that interactivity that we correct yes. live guests and there's obviously going to be a compromise or compromise might be the wrong word but there's a trade-off 
in terms of trying to get that variety just because of the time zone we're on and the time zone of a lot of guests that we'd be looking to pursue. We enjoy it. And, you know, working in radio for years, we understand that you have a lot of guests who are pre-taped, whether the audience realizes it or not. We're looking to have full transparency. Yeah, we don't and, want you guys to think it's a live show or the right. parts that aren't. And we can still talk to you, but it's not the same. You, We can't right. put up a comment that you leave for the director. You know, you can't ask him a question if it's pre-taped, all that kind of stuff. So, so we just um, want to make sure that you guys are enjoying it and that you liked it. We, we really enjoyed doing it, but obviously... We want to make sure that your experience is enjoyable as well. Um, before we go, so we talked Rams earlier in the show, um, and we'll you know we'll have all this stuff back up on the podcast, and uh, maybe try to break out this interview as well with uh, Bernardo Ruiz. Paul George signed an extension today with the Clippers max extension. Do you have the number? It's like two hundred twenty-four million dollars or something. It's a lot, a lot of money, to say the least. It's 190 million dollars. 190 million, and then it makes it like two something being added to it. So you're going to make a total of like 224, whatever it is. So 226 is uh, guaranteed over the next five years. 190 million added on the 35.4 that he was already making. Yeah, so so uh, consumed with making sure I had the correct windows open to screen share the right interviews and the right trailer that I I closed the window that had the Paul George information on it. I I am torn between both the understanding, like the teasing about the the reaction uh, to it and really like reminding people like Paul George is excellent at basketball. Like we have the, you know, the playoff P thing and all that. Paul George is excellent at basketball and he is a max player. Um, He's a problem. Paul George is excellent at basketball. He is also excellent at triggering really good jokes Yes. And sometimes those two realities uh, butt up against each other rather uncomfortably in ways that are very awkwardly and seem like they would be impossible to live right now. Right. That are impossible to live in the same space. But they're both true. These are things that can be mutually exclusive. He is one of, at worst, the 20 best basketball players in the league. At the top of his game, he can be a top 10 guy. Um, he is also top 20 at worst, probably top 10 or higher at triggering jokes, often really good ones. So yeah. again, uncomfortable yeah, reality. Well, a lot of this gets made, you know, like it's, it's that contrast is because a max guy means the same thing for Jamal Murray, who's you know really good, but you know, but he's not LeBron James or Anthony Davis. They all fit into the same category of max Gordon player. Hayward. Correct. Like, you know, because the threshold of it's not the bottom end guys who make it's it's that LeBron, AD, KD, all they're all the D's. They're underpaid like their upper LeBron's upper salary is limited by what the NBA allows uh, star players to be paid. So a lot of guys enter this conversation of are they a max player or not? Paul George absolutely is based on the salary structure. But what he isn't is somebody that you can make your best player, you know, the best player on the team that's going to win a championship. Um, there are people wondering if he can be the second best player. And it, it the whole thing gets skewed because of that. And then you start to get into the obvious playoff disappointments and hitting the side of the backboard and all the other things that go along with Paul George. He's definitely at, he is at worst, 
your third best player on a championship team, like absolutely at worst. He's one of I the think, best two-way players in the league, for right, sure. You're I right. think he's actually capable of being the second best player on a championship team. And there aren't actually a lot of guys around the league that are that good either. Yeah, like you know, it, Yes, he is not capable of carrying a team to a championship. Like You can't build a team around him like that. But the truth is there's only a handful of guys around the league that I think you can legitimately make that case for, whether because you've seen them do it already or right. because you just know how good they are and you know that if the circumstances were set up correctly, you know, all things being equal and all things being logical, they can do that. But the truth is, you know, when you look at like Pau Gasol, for example, when he was the second option, second best player on those championship teams with Kobe, there were not a lot of guys around the league as good as Pau for that role. That role mattered. And you know what? Pau Gasol got paid a lot of money to do that role with the Lakers. Paul George is a necessary component or somebody like him. If you want to put yourself in a realistic chance to win a championship, yes. like if you want to put yourself in, in at least that type of space, and those type of guys cost a lot of money because they, do. And, they are rare. And I think this is we're in one of these moments too where this the the perception has been skewed because the Lakers don't just like most teams don't have the you know a one in the league and like the fourth in the league. You know, it's like you've got Kawhi Leonard and like the 12th best player, you know, and these things are tiers, they shift, whatever, but people understand what I mean. You're, you know, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, you're Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. Like you have two outstanding elite level players. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't feel good enough because that second guy isn't as good as the, you know, the, the team that you're chasing. And, you know, it, you know, it's a, you're, Monty asked an interesting question. Like, I, I don't know why these teams commit to four or five years at the max, offer two or three years at the max, because you have that's the only way you can get Paul get these guys to sign. Yeah, if you want to keep them, you have to give them the assuming full, that's what they want. I mean, some right. guys want shorter term deals, but if they want long term, right? And he, he, the response to that, he comes back is they balk, trade them, or let them walk. But the problem is, you can't find. You need a certain amount of these guys to win. You. It is an imperfect process that allows you to get him. And as, as Ahmed Youssef 18 points out, if you lose him, you know you can't get anyone else back. Right. You, and just, then, you can't find these guys. And then in this specific case with the Clippers, everything that you gave up in order to bring in Paul George, which by extension got you Kawhi Leonard, you're, I think it was uh, Jason Concepcion, uh, known on uh, Twitter as Network, pointed out this is essentially the equivalent of being at a poker table and you don't necessarily love your hand. You may like it, but you don't necessarily love it, but you got to see the river. You at have this to. point, you've got to see that river card. <laughs> they are, and that, they are and genuinely card, pot committed. Yeah, and that river card might win you that whole pot, but you've already put in so much money with this hand you have to see the river. This card. is this is something that we should talk about. We one of the uh, one of the uh, interviews we're hoping to schedule is with David Hill. He, he's he's a gambler. Yeah, <laughs> you talk to us about gambling and uh, like you know the idea of being pot committed is something that you that that has worked its way into sports in ways well beyond poker. 
Uh, the Clippers had no alternative. It, it, no. Obviously, this whole thing goes to shit if Kawhi leaves and Paul George stays. You have Paul George, no draft picks, and not a ton of flexibility in terms of cap and you know, more, but not a ton. Um, you got to do it anyway. You yeah. have no choice. Okay. If George yeah. wants to stay and he is willing to sign the deal, it's it's not a contract I'd be confident ages well because he's not healthy, hasn't been healthy, gets banged up all the time. But if you want to keep Kawhi, you got to show the commitment. They're, and, they're in win-now mode. You try yes. to win now, you worry about the later, later. I mean, the the Lakers championship teams, that's you know Kobe's second tour of duty with titles, those teams, you looked at that saying, at some point, those contracts are going to be bad. They're going. They leveraged all. I mean, they they hemorrhaged assets. You know, they they gave up. They they would attach picks. You know, to like Derek Fisher or Luke Walton in order to bring in Ramon Sessions and other guys that they were hoping would help out or just to get their books a little cleaner. And at some point, the bill comes due. But the trade-off was the Lakers won two championships, went to another Finals during that period, mm-hmm. and for at least a couple more years put themselves in a realistic discussion to win championships. That's the best you can ask for. At some point, the bill always comes due. Right. And, and for the Clippers, like the, the, just the unfortunate thing about it is you're doing this, you're making the play, you're making the aggressive play, the play you have to make. At a time, the Lakers just keep getting better. And they're not – the opening just isn't there right now. It could be there by the end of the year, but yeah. right now it's not. Like, if everybody on that team's come comes back with the right headspace, they're going to be really, really good. Great comment from Monty Ten. Maybe Paul George will go to Houston for Harden mid-season. Continuing the idea of Paul George being like at the center of every significant trade in NBA history. I'm telling you, when they when they somebody is eventually going to do, and I hope it's us because we love this stuff, like the oral history of this particular period like the last 10 years in basketball Paul George is going to end up this fascinating character in it because he has been tangentially or directly a part of so many pivotal moments over the last five to ten years in the NBA it's absolutely going to be fascinating um, all right so we have uh, tomorrow night we were we were scheduled to have Sean Hyken who uh, lives up in Portland and covers the Blazers for Bleacher Report among other people um, and he was going to come on tomorrow because he didn't think he'd be allowed in the building. Turns out he is. <laughs> he's going to go. He's going to go do some work tomorrow. He's going to join us on Monday. Uh, but we got a lot of basketball set up for uh, for next week. Um, Sean Hyken on Monday. We've got Jordan Rodriguez coming on uh, Wednesday. Brian Curtis from the Ringer on Thursday. Uh, and Claire DeLune, who many people know from Count the Dings and some other stuff yeah. on Friday, fun basketball and pop culture person. Tomorrow night, we might have somebody on, but it's a uh, first Lakers game uh, of the preseason. And so we'll be talking a lot of NBA uh, tomorrow night, one way or another. Again, please, please, please leave us your comments about... Um, the Bernardo Ruiz, the Bernardo Ruiz interview the of it, yeah, the experience as much as you know the interview itself. We want to make sure um, that you know we refine this and it works for you guys as well as we can make it work. So um, again, thanks again to Bernardo Ruiz, uh, and thanks to you for watching. And we will be back tomorrow. Donkey Nederland. <laughs>